Well, let's turn to read for uh, a little selection here of uh, reading in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 8. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 8. And it's certainly a privilege to, to be here today to speak a little bit on behalf of the work in Mexico. And uh, my thanks to the brethren responsible here for this opportunity, and I trust the Lord will give help to give a little summary of some things that have been happening there, at least things that we are somewhat in touch with and familiar with. Um, Let's read in Ephesians chapter 3, please, and verse number 8. And Paul is writing here, saying unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, of course, it would be fairly uh, presumptuous and uh, fairly proud for any one of us to insert ourselves into that verse because there was probably no one apart from the Lord Jesus who was uh, such a a servant in the gospel. But I think whether or not we uh, would fit this passage or whether this passage would fit us, I think all and any of us that are saved today that have had the privilege of speaking of the Lord Jesus to an unsaved person, whether in personal testimony and witness or in public presentation of the gospel, I think we can all identify with the sentiments that are here expressed that it is a wonderful privilege to be able to speak of the Lord Jesus to our fellow man. I, um, I think of the personal appreciation that Paul speaks about when he says, unto me. And he thoroughly enjoyed it and was enthused about it and never seemed to get over the wonder of God's salvation, God's saving grace that had reached him. The posture of humility that he assumes, as he says, I am less than the least of all saints. And I thought that that was a kind of a puzzling expression because, I mean, in our day and age, we're, we're even encouraged not to compare ourselves with others. And I understand why, but um, in a certain sense, Paul didn't seem to have any issue with that. And he compared himself with others even when it came to the gospel, and he called himself the chiefest, the chief of sinners. You remember that in First Timothy chapter 1. And even in comparing himself to other servants in First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 15, he, he would speak about uh, how that he was the, the least of the apostles. Um, and he was not meet to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. And uh, so he considered himself to be below the others. I guess it was a, a spin-off from the high esteem with which he valued and with which he had the practice of regarding others. And in this particular case, he calls himself the least of all saints. I don't think it was an exaggeration. I think it was just uh, an overwhelming sense of indebtedness to God, of awe that we were hearing about earlier today in the presence of God, of the salvation, of the grace of God that had reached and, and saved him. And he just never could get over that um, tremendous blessing that God had brought into his life. So I think of the posture of humility as he says, he is less than the least of all saints. I think of the privilege that he appreciated where he says, is this grace given? Is this grace given? He considered it to be something that he was unworthy of. Not only unworthy of salvation, but unworthy to be in the employ of such a tremendous enterprise. The grace that could be given to him to be able to spread this message around, to let it abound. There's life in the risen Lord, as we sing sometimes. He uh, never tired of speaking of the grace of God. He often couched 
his expressions of it. In Romans chapter 12, he speaks of, I say through the grace of God which is given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to every man the measure of, of grace. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he speaks of saying, by the grace of God, he says, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. And yet he says, I labored more abundantly than all, than all of the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God which, uh, which was working in me. And so here he is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, he says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and let every man take heed thereunto how he builds, speaking of the assembly. And so here he is as he thinks about this wonderful privilege of being able to share the message of the gospel with the Gentiles, the people among whom he would announce this message. The cross that was uh, here was leading him to be able to go beyond the barriers of his Jewish culture, reach out to people from other cultures and other customs and other beliefs and other creeds. And he would go to them with the message of the gospel unashamedly and um, unequivocally preach this message and declare it with joy and with, with, a, with assurance in his heart as he would share this message with others around him. The grace of God that freed him from restraints when it came to shedding and sharing this message to people around him. I think of the, the, uh, the key point, really, that's in this verse, is that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He had a heart that was full of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those untraceable, those untrackable riches of Christ. That uh, to be traced through to its ultimate conclusion is an impossibility. They are inscrutable. They, they cannot subject themselves to scrutiny that would ultimately come to a conclusion as to where these unsearchable riches of Christ begin and where they are going to end. They are the unsearchable, the untraceable riches of Christ. You think of how that they would they would tell us about the fact that they are so abundant, they would not be able to be fully calculated or fully measured. They're immeasurable. They are the abundant. They are the unsearchable. They are the unlimited riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are vast and they are large. They are immeasurable. So they are not only inscrutable, but they are immeasurable. But I suppose as Paul would stand so staggered by the grace of God, and the unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more he went along in his path, the more he was he was realizing that this is something that beggars all description. That language and vocabulary and and tongues are not sufficient to speak the worth and the majestic greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such blessings defy explanation. They are inexplicable. They are the unspeakable. It is thanks beyond to God for his indescribable, his unspeakable gift. And so with a heart that was full of Christ, I think of the words of that hymn that say, my heart is full of Christ and longs his glorious, this glorious matter to declare. Of him I make my, <clears throat> my loftier songs. And, and uh, if I could read my own writing, it would be better here. <laughs> And cannot from his praise forbear. My, my ready tongue makes, makes haste to sing the glories of my heavenly king. And I suppose that's the great secret 
of uh, enthusiasm and being able to speak to others about the Savior is not by accident, the genius of God, that on the beginning of every week, he would have us sit down with his people to remember Christ, to remember the cross, to remember Calvary, so that forth from that happy occasion, hearts that are at least recharged and restored and refreshed in his presence, rejoicing in the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ, once more impacted and impressed by the greatness of this one, we can move forward into a dark world, a Christless, a godless world, and seek to share this message with others around about us. And in fact, I guess, you know, it's a missionary report, so-called. And I don't know if there's anybody here, and it's crossed your mind at times, what the world, what the Lord wants you to do for him in this world, and in your little life. And uh, in case I forget to mention it, let me just say this to you, that uh, God is is not so much looking for preachers as he is looking for soul winners. He is not so much looking for someone for a career as he is looking for someone for a calling that is felt and that weighs upon the heart. It is a, a love for souls. So don't wait for some better day. Don't wait for some different uh, wider sphere of activity or opportunity. Do what you can right now because all of us are surrounded by the masses that are going to hell and they need to hear the message. So um, this little verse was just coming to mind because of the fact that I can um, personally relate to somewhat of the sentiment that is found in, in, this, in these words, and that is that for me, and I'm sure I can vouch for all here and any as well of my fellow laborers in Mexico, that it is a great privilege to be there and to uh, have the opportunity to see the response of the people and to see the Lord work. And I suppose wherever you are when that happens, it is a great thrill and a great privilege. And um, it's just such a great honor. I just, I really love working in Mexico. And um, I guess I'd have to say that one of the reasons I love it is because, as far as I'm concerned, it's the best fishing pond that I've ever been in. It's uh, the greatest place. And that doesn't mean that it's all a walk in the park and that there's uh, just, you know, tons of people that are flocking to getting saved and everything else. But it, there is lots of opportunity. And I suppose one of the objectives or some of the objectives in my mind for this report would be to stir your hearts, would be to inform your prayers, hopefully will be to glorify God. And perhaps someone might even, this might be a key, um, might be a cog in the wheel to help, help further your exercise and burden about what God might be, perhaps what he might have in mind for you in terms of serving the Lord. I suppose I should throw in this caveat that the work is one. The other workers that are in Mexico and uh, all with valid works and fields of service and, and uh, great significance in the works that they are doing, but I am uh, not as familiar with that, and so I can only, I'm limited by what I can tell you. So what I'm going to be giving here you today is merely a small segment of a great enterprise that is going on there as Many of you already know, having heard many missionary reports to date on this. So primarily, what I have to tell you today is going to be based on the last 10 months of activity there. And, um, of course, based on something that, some that has preceded that, and that is the fact that where we are currently hanging our hat for the most part is in Ciudad Obregón in Sonora, Mexico. That is approximately nine hours um, hard drive south of the city of Phoenix, Arizona. And... Um, the assembly there just celebrated two year, uh, its two-year anniversary. There are 16 
uh, believers from the locality that are in the fellowship there. And being somewhat superstitious, I'm afraid to mention that out loud because just the moment you say something like that, first thing you know, there's news that, oh, somebody left, you know, and oh, another family took off, you know, and first thing you know, the assembly that you thought was going so great, all of a sudden uh, becomes very vulnerable and weak. And I think any of us that are involved in assembly work, whether in the homelands or further afield, all understand what is involved there. But we are thankful for God, and we we're privileged to have our brother Sean St. Clair down with us and uh, giving us some ministry just to coincide with that special occasion. And um, so you might, I guess, in terms of your prayers, pray for the preservation and the growth of the assembly there in Ciudad Obregón. But um, in addition to that, there has been opportunities that have arisen. And it's a wonderful thrill to be able to say that um, there's a number of places here, if you happen to have a map that you picked up um, at the back of the auditorium, there is uh, some places in the last few months that we have been going to, and others, of course, as well. And um, it's been interesting to, w- to witness God working in these different places. I think I counted them up, and there's a number of... There's one of the places on here that we haven't visited yet, although we have met individuals from there, and there's a visit pending to it, and that's the town or the city of Cuernavaca, just to the south of Mexico City. And if you can see on the left-hand side of the map where Obregón is situated, just below Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, and um, that is where we are based. But um, of the different areas that are mentioned here, there's three of the areas where God is blessed in salvation, and of course the other areas that still have enough interest to keep us going to them. Um, Our primary focus, if you can see right at the very bottom of the map, is the word Iguala. Iguala is down in the state of Guerrero, that I can hardly say correctly, and that state is, uh, Iguala is just three hours bus ride from the south side of Mexico City. It lies approximately 1,400 miles from uh, where we are in Obregón, so it takes uh, more than a day or two of hitchhiking to get there. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, an area of the surrounding villages of maybe approximately 250,000 population. I think the actual town itself is right around 130 or 140,000 of a population. And it's, um, it is actually the home to a number of families whose relatives are in the assembly in West Phoenix. And the first visit to Iguala was actually made by our brother John Dennison some three years ago at the behest and request of a couple of sisters in the assembly in West Phoenix. Alma and her husband Aurelio, and Carmen and her husband uh, Noe, all four people, actually along with another sister unrelated to them in the assembly in West Phoenix, have relatives in Iguala. And what is interesting and a happy coincidence that uh, facilitates a little better attention to them all is they all live in the same subdivision, in uh, the same subdivision in, in Iguala. And so it makes it very handy for visiting them. These sisters very patiently praying and pleading and trying to persuade someone to go and take the gospel. And our brother John Dennison went there, as I said, three years ago. But these sisters were unrelenting. And uh, to the point of even with tears, trying to plead with someone to please go. And one of the problems, of course, as you know, in Mexico, <clears throat> is that we daren't, we doesn't try uh, a new work anywhere because one of the worst one of the best things that can happen is is also a thing that causes a problem. And that is, it seems like when you go to try something in some of these places, well, lo and behold, people get saved. And so now you have a problem on your hand because what are you going to do with them? Are you going to walk away and leave them? So when you already got some stuff on your hands 
and works that, you, that need your attention and care, it's very tough to all of a sudden up and go to another place and engage in the gospel. And then what are you going to do? You soon spread yourself a little bit too thin. But I guess to a certain point of recklessness or radicalness, that we don't always know the end from the beginning. The Lord who is the Lord of the harvest doesn't always tell us how he's going to figure everything out down the line, and he doesn't need to. So with the confidence that God will know how to solve those potential dilemmas, some more visits uh, were made to some of these different places. And starting at the end of November, Duncan Beckett and I finally agreed to go in and visit the families there, primarily the family of Alma, um, from a Pentecostal background, most of her family, as well as to visit the family of Carmen. Uh, both families are related, but I'd have to say don't always get along the best, even though they live within one block of each other. And uh, also to try to visit Noe, uh, his family connection there, his grandfather, 85 years old. And so with those three families in mind, we went there and we put in a few days, less than a week, on our first visit. And it was a, a great thrill because when we went there, uh, of course, to meet the people, and they're all very courteous and very uh, very uh, social and warm and friendly, as the people in Mexico are, and... Um, and uh, I would say largely due to the prayers and the efforts of Alma, especially in Alma's family, there was a ready response to the gospel. That afternoon when we went there, I remember that we, um, we had a, a visit across the street from where Alma's parents live, <clears throat> Alvaro and, and Irma, went across the street, and there was two sisters that were there, Sylvia and Dulce. And one of the first questions that they hit us with was, we would like you to be able to tell us how we can be saved. Well, Duncan and I nearly fell off the pails that we were sitting on. And it was, it was astonishing that they would have that, that kind of a readiness, that kind of an anxiousness, actually, of being saved. You know, at first we thought it was just kind of a courteous or a civil, just kind of exchange. But to our surprise, in that first visit, I think we only had four meetings. And during those four meetings, nearly everybody in Alma's family professed to get saved. And it happened way too fast for my skepticism. And so I was definitely suspecting that this cannot be. Um, it was astonishing. I remember when David, the youngest of the, he's just uh, 21 years old. And just what we were having our first, we first, when we first met him, hadn't even had our first meeting yet. And we were sitting there talking to him. And David, David was a, a fellow that's uh, active in the, in the charismatic church up the hill from where he was. Um, in a television program with a pastor of that church in the community on a weekly basis and a treasurer for the church there and, uh, you know, greatly intensely interested in how to be saved and sure of salvation. And as Duncan was explaining to him the concept of completely trusting on Christ and he was using it with the illustration of a chair, sitting half on a chair or sitting completely on a chair, which is really trusting the chair, sitting half on of it on it or sitting completely on it. And David is, is very, very quick and immediately caught the concept. And without us knowing it, he actually, at that very moment, saw the distinction between his way of thinking of how Christ would save us. A combination of Christ doing his part and David doing his part of faithfulness, of going to the church, of making sure that he was giving his tithe, of making sure that he was evangelizing of making sure that he was trying to keep all of the commandments. And at that very juncture, he tossed 
his prior false thinking about salvation, and he opted for and trusted Christ completely. In the analogy of the chair, he finally sat completely on the chair and let the chair hold him. You get it? And he told us about it the next day. And I always remember when we said to him, well, so what, what, does that, what does that feel like? He says, do you want to know what that feels like? He says, this is how it feels like. And he lifted up his shoulders and his arms and he went, <sighs> he said, that's what it feels like. Pure relief. To know that I don't have to worry about my heaven any longer. Because it all depends on him. So, well, we were astonished. And do we'll say the woman that asked us about how to, get, how to get saved, the first meeting she got saved in that meeting, her brother Edgar got saved the next night, as well as did Sylvia. And we were coming around to try to attack Mama Bear because, you know, she was like a uh, very supercharged, charismatic, theology, thinking, expression, vocab, and everything. So we were thinking for sure that this was going to be a struggle and a tussle. But, you know, to our astonishment, she broke into tears. And she said, in the meeting last night, she says, when... 1 John 1 and 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth from all sin. She says, for the first time in my life, in my 20 years of being in different places, she says, I discovered that it actually is true that his blood actually does cleanse me. She says, I don't have any more sins now. So, of course, you know, you're not trying to trap people, so we say to her, yeah, but, you know, what about if... Say a month down the road, something happens, one of the grandkids get on your nerve, you lose your temper, and let's say you just, you swear. And before you even had a chance to repent, smack, you're hit with a heart attack and you die. Where would you go? Oh, she says, brothers, I'd go straight to heaven. She says, because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from all sin. Well, we were astonished. You know, and um, anyways, that kind of lit the interest. Um, there was um, some of the daughters-in-laws that have gotten saved subsequent to that, and one of the fellows that professed to get saved in that week um, ditched his profession and seems to have gotten saved in July of just this this past summer. Eder. And... Um, his sister is saying how different he talks now and how encouraging it is to listen to him. And so there, there has been a plan in place whereby we have been going back to visit Iguala about once every month or so. And um, different brethren have gone along. I think there's been six, at least six different brethren that have joined in on these different trips, having a week of meetings with them. And at the same time, also visiting these other families. So we visited Noe's family. And during that first week that we were there, we met Noe's family, and some from uh, some from that family actually were coming up the hill to this first family that I'm telling you about, where the interest was so sustained. And uh, again, to our encouragement and surprise, I can't remember now whether it was that first visit or whether it was the next visit in the month of December, where Noe's cousin Rocio and her mother that had got on a bus. And, and rode four hours from Altamirano in, in, in another uh, state, came across to coincide with the visit so she could hear the same message of the gospel. 
and both of those ladies professed to get saved. Regrettably, I have to tell you that uh, Donny Friend, the grandpa, 85 years old, still hasn't got saved. And um, so we just are earnestly hoping and praying he's heard a lot of gospel. So what we would do is we'd have a house meeting in, uh, in their place first, and then we'd also have a house meeting up at Alvaro and Irma's place as well. But um, as time went on, we found out about a, another family connection in that city, and that would be Noe's stepfather is one of 12 brothers. And those 12 brothers all live in the same subdivision of San Ope is what it's called. I don't know what the acronym stands for, but um, he is right actually within sight of Noe's grandfather's house. But for different reasons, they don't come down to, they don't really get together too much with each other. Um, so in this, uh, I forget what month it was, in the spring of this year, was when I first found out about it because Noe's stepfather talked to me at a conference in West Phoenix and asked me if I would be interested in going to see his brothers. He says, I'll give you their names. I'll give you their phone numbers. I'll give you their address. He says, my brothers, most of them are ungodly, rough men. He says, I have one brother there, and he once went to an evangelical place, and I think he would receive you. But I will call them. I have another brother there as well named Tomas, and I will call them and set it up if you're willing to go in. And I was a little surprised because Noe's stepfather's name is Daniel. Daniel is of a charismatic persuasion, does not agree with what we would teach at the assembly, does not come to our meetings, although he did come to that one day at the conference out of interest, very friendly, affable sort of a fella. And I think, in a backwards or roundabout way without admitting it, he actually does agree and endorse a lot of our, religion, our, our, our thinking and teaching, our theology. In fact, he has even went so far as to order and pay for a William Donald uh, commentary in Spanish that he turned around and then sent down to Mexico to his brother there in the city of Iguala. So I remember <clears throat> on this particular First visit actually was Milton Jaime from San Diego that was with me on this particular visit. And we went in. First of all, we go to Tomas and Ines' house. And when we get in, they, they greet us, you know, and then they're kind of sitting there and they're saying, so you can go ahead. We can go ahead. Yeah, like, you know, you're going to tell us something. So we kind of all of a sudden clued in that they're actually wanting and ready and set up for a meeting. So rather than just having a visit in these different homes, the visit is kind of the introductory thing. Then we shift gears and we go into a gospel preaching mode. And it might be just two or three people. In this case, it's Tomas and Ines, a couple of grandkids. And it's also the grandmother. And uh, so she's 88 years old. And they're all sitting there. And Tomas climbs up on the kitchen table and gets some duct tape out. And he tapes up the two roads chart. And then we have some little hymn books and we pass it out to them. And they're looking at it, and they're reading along. They've never heard these songs before. And we try to sing a couple of gospel songs, start it off with a prayer, and then we give them two brief gospel messages. Again, to our astonishment, Ines, going to an evangelical church for 10 years. Three days later, as we're sitting for lunch with her, uh, having pozole, it was very delicious, and we're sitting there, and we finally come out and said, so what do you think? What do you think of this message that we've been trying to tell you the last three days? They look at each other. No one says anything. And finally, Ines goes, well, I'm going to say what I think. She says, you know what? I found out 
on the first day that you were here on that first message that it's not by works, that I don't have to go to church, that I don't have to pay my tithe, that I, that I, I do fail, but she says, I'm not going to go out and try to fail, but she says, I found out that the Lord Jesus is the door, and if I enter by him alone, I am saved. And she says, that afternoon, I entered by the door, and I now know I'm saved by what he has done instead of what I am doing. Now, we were silent. <laughs> so, it was amazing. Tomas still hasn't got it. In fact, my last conversation with him, to tell him that we're going back in for a visit, actually on Tuesday of this coming week, with Brother John Dennison, he said, I found a verse. And he says, it tells you that you get saved by works. And he says, when you come, I'm going to show it to you. <laughs> so he hasn't caught it quite yet. But you know what? God is able to open blind eyes and, uh, and able to break hard hearts. They, um, the family is quite fractured because of years of bitter infighting. So Tomas lives here. Four houses down is where Basilio, his brother, lives. Basilio, 30 years ago, fell off of a ladder after a drunken party the night before and broke his back and has been in a wheelchair ever since and is in a bed with other medical complications. The first afternoon that we went in to visit Basilio, after the visit at Ines and Tomas's house, we knock on the door and we hear the voice to come in and we we're, go up the stairs and turn the corner and go in and there is Basilio on the bed. So we listen to them, and Basilio talks for quite a while. He talks about his past. He talks about two years ago starting to go to an evangelical church. He talked, and as he talked, it became more apparent his confusion about salvation. And I remember how, I remember how that as a, as a result of looking at different verses, and there on his shelf is Bibles, William MacDonald's Commentary, Strong's Concordance, uh, different, different books, his little stand that he props up on his chest so that he can put the Bible there. And got a little little wee laptop computer that he can go online. And uh, this man has just been devouring his Bible for the last two years, even if he didn't understand salvation. And that afternoon, discussing John chapter 10 and verse 28, I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, is when the penny dropped for Basilio. We went back the next day, and we asked him how he was feeling. He says, did you fellows notice? He said, I was completely confused and mistaken yesterday. But he says, I found out who really actually does the saving. It's the shepherd that saves the sheep. So we, did, we were almost, we didn't even want to ask any further just not to disturb or rock the apple cart, you know. And so we just kind of retreated thinking that maybe the man has gotten saved. Who knows? And on a subsequent visits, it's become very apparent. And so what happens is it's, it's growing. So as a result, we have a, a house meeting at Tomas, Tomas and Inés's house. And every afternoon we have one at, also at Basilio's house. His wife, Roman Catholic, all her life. For the first time, just two months ago, started reading her Bible. Albeit a Roman Catholic translation, she said, and I'm going to read that right through, and when I'm done that, then I'm going to read your translation, just to see if it's the same. But she's coming along to those meetings. they got a nice patio with a roof over it. Across the road is, um, is a niece, Rosalba, and her husband, Pedro. Now get a hold of this. 
They're mad at her dad. Her dad lives down below them because it's on a very steep hill. But they don't want to see him. They don't want to talk to him. They don't want to go near him. So I didn't tell you, but we actually have started having meetings in her dad's house. His name is Hinato. So we go there and have a house meeting after, after, every afternoon, but the daughter doesn't want to go down there, so she goes across the road to her uncle Basilio's, and she comes there with her husband and her daughter, and they listen to the gospel. And other members of Basilio's family, as they sit and listen and are ready for us every afternoon. So what, what the long and short of it is, is that in the process of approximately one week or less, we end up having the equivalent of some 20 or even more, we, we can... We can compress into less than one week, approximately three weeks of gospel meetings in the different houses that we're in. So it's a tremendous opportunity. It's a fantastic experience. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit busy, as you might imagine, but you have this, this, uh, the three gospel meetings, three house meetings in the Sordiano, fa- Sordiano family, the house meeting at Doni Friends down below, and the house meeting at uh, Alma's family up, up, up higher up the hill. Great opportunity. That's Iguala. We've had two baptisms so far. Four people have gotten baptized. And this particular visit, there are three people that expressed interest the last visit in getting baptized, but one of them got sick, and so it was postponed until this visit. So obviously the Lord is moving things forward. So you might pray for the need of that, of that work in Iguala, maybe the fastest growing work. And I guess one of the, basically two things. Of course, there's the constant of always needing the Lord to continue working. But I would have to say this, that one of the things that we lament is the lack of workers so that we wouldn't have to be traveling there so often. And uh, so you might pray that the Lord will raise up somebody that will be peculiarly fitted for the need of the people there. And a central location whereby we can amalgamate these different house meetings and get everybody all under one roof. And hopefully the work can go forward from there. So pray for a pending visit, as I just mentioned, on Tuesday for another week that we plan to go in there this week with Brother John Dennison. He gives, uh, will be given ministry meetings in uh, Alma's house every night, and there'll be, there's quite a number of kids there, so I'll be out on the patio with the kids giving them children's meetings. The kids are completely biblically illiterate, so it's, it's a wonderful opportunity with them, as well as the other house meetings and families that I've already mentioned to you, and two or three more other families that we haven't been able to really do justice to yet because of time and attention given to the others. Remember the need of the work in Iguala. I should tell you, just so we're still in the same geographical location, that on the way down there, it's uh, sometimes easy to just put in an extra night or half of a day and do a house meeting at a relative from one of the families that are in Iguala who live in Ixtapalapa, not too far from the assembly in Neza in Mexico City. And in that particular family, the man of the house seems to have clearly gotten saved, and the daughter seems to have gotten saved in December at a Christmas pageant. So that's a family that we're trying to work with there and try to make visits. There's another family over in Toluca, which is two hours west of uh, Mexico City, that we've also had occasion to visit there, a couple in which the woman is saved, but the husband is not. And in the process, we met the grandfather of the woman who actually lives in Cuernavaca. And Cuernavaca is about... Uh, three-quarters of an hour south of Mexico City, and that is where there is a growing number of contacts, and Brother John Dennis and I are hoping to maybe take an early part of a day and take a bus and go up to Cuernavaca to try to scout out some of these contacts there and see if there isn't some possibilities in the gospel with those people in Cuernavaca. 
Well, the last visit well, that we were there, Marcus Kane and I were able to go. And on the way back, not just in Mexico City, not just in Iguala, and not just in Toluca that you can see here on, on your map, but also in this longer name here at the top, which is called Tarandraquao. And Tarandraquao is where there is actually the father and the brother of two women that got saved in the assembly in West Phoenix in January. And burdened about their families, were pleading for someone to go and visit. And so this last time through, Marcus and I were able to go with a brother from Nisa, with a, another brother that lent us a car, and we went across, um, across to this town of Taranacuao, and very Catholic town, and we were able to throw the chart on the floor, and those two men listened to the gospel for the first time, three gospel messages that afternoon, and so that was our first contact with that family there. Um, the man that lent us the car, his name is Antonio. Antonio has a sister named Clara. Clara lives in this town of Guasave that you can see on the left hand of your map. Guasave is down in the state of Sinaloa, and it is uh, approximately um, a three-hour hard drive south of the city of Obregón. Marcus Kane and I, along with Duncan, on the first occasion, we have had two visits, two, uh, two meetings, and actually we just had a third meeting there. Eight people sat in a language school classroom. Air conditioning, very nice, clean, white, everything was great. Very commodious circumstance in which we had uh, a gospel meeting with them all. And um, so far, as far as we can tell, although there is a keen interest to be saved, we haven't um, got any assurance quite yet of any break happening with those people. They are educated. They're obviously running a school. They are very industrious. They're very hardworking very open to the gospel, all through the testimony of her brother that lives in Nesa and goes to the assembly there. Last year, Brother Stanley Higgins came down for an intensive weekend of minister meetings. And lo and behold, on the Sunday morning, as we were having the chairs all set up for breaking of bread, it was early, more than an hour early, and uh, here is this woman sitting, comes into the place and sat down wondering who in the world she is. So we go over and talk to her, and here if it doesn't turn out to be Antonio's sister. She got on a bus, <clears throat> and the bus, of course, takes a little longer than a car. So she got on the bus that morning and took a five-hour bus ride up to Obregón for one reason only, so that she could sit down and for the first time in her life observe the Lord's Supper, a breaking of bread, that her brother has been telling her about from she says, this place where he goes, she says, I don't know what, it's a strange, she says, it doesn't even have a name. She says, but I'm going to tell you something. When my brother got saved, he became totally a different person. He was wealthy, chemical engineer with Pemex, the national gas company, drank only the best liquors. Here is a man that had everything and accessed everything, a godless man, and he got saved and became completely changed. And he's constantly on the phone. We talk sometimes for an hour and a half on the phone about the scriptures. She says, I have gone for over 20 years to what I'm going to call evangelical light. And she says, he's learned more in two years at this strange place that he goes to than I have in 20 years that I've been going to the places I've gone to. And she says, 
That's why I came this morning. I found out that it took her six hours on the bus to get back. So think about it. The next time you're a little bit hesitant about going to remember the Lord, maybe it seems a little bit too far from you. Where the assembly is located, a little bit wearisome, burdensome. Here's a woman, not even saved, and so serious and interested about it, was willing to travel over 10 hours so she could sit down and observe, not even participate, observe for once in her life the breaking of bread. I don't think any one of us are going to be surprised when someday the news comes through about that woman getting saved. In fact, she's very outspoken. And the last time we were there, I remember that was just uh, last week. And here's all these people, and they're all sitting at tables. And we have the chart up on the blackboard. And uh, the first message has just been given. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. What salvation is, receiving Christ, what it is not, not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. She puts up her hand afterwards. She says, I want to say something right here now. She says, I want to say right now that all these years I have been completely confused. She says, I thought it was putting the hands on the head and repeating a few little words. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you have died for me. Enter into my heart. Take over my life. And bingo, you're saved. She says, you know what I've done? I've led many people to the feet of Jesus, doing my hands on their head and getting them to repeat that prayer. She says, you know what? I'm learning from these verses that that's not what happens. That's not how it works. And I'll never forget the look of horror and astonishment on the face of a woman in her first meeting sitting beside her, a friend of hers named Elia. The horror and the surprise. And Clara cut on. She goes, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what I did for you. But no, no. She says, that's not salvation. It's not? No, she said, no, no, that's not salvation. It's a question of knowing Christ. It's a question of receiving Christ. You're not saying some little prayer that saves you. Well, it became more evident even as the meeting went on. Even if you allow that some people can get saved through the sinner's prayer... This woman, after the second message is done, she puts up her hand. She says, I've got a question. She says, don't we have to keep the Ten Commandments to go to heaven? Whoa. You know what I'm saying? So we had a, the meeting, and then we had a two-hour after meeting. Discussion, everything else, and it ended up great with some tacos down at the corner, some good tacos with carne asada. It was good. So um, that was there. So we're leaving, and we say, okay, so... We're really, we're kind of busy, so, you know, when, you know, so far, the first time they told us, once a month, come back for once a month. Okay? So how about, when would you like the next one? They look at each other, they say, well, would you be able to, would you be willing to come back, like, every two weeks? Marcus and I look at each other. Probably it could be arranged. The other lady, Siamara, she's there for the first time, she says, well, like, don't you think you could maybe come back? for two weeks. Like, be here for two weeks and give us these meetings every night. Well, we said we wouldn't be totally, completely opposed to that either, you know? It would just be a question of arranging it, organizing it, and we'd have to, you know, try to figure out the particulars. 
And uh, so that's meeting. The next meeting is planned for October 10th. Please pray for the work in Guasave. And they're not dumb. The one, her daughter, Karina, she's, she's uh, in her 40s, actually. Norwegian husband, Egil. And she says, so when are you going to bring somebody from Canada or the United States to come down here and be part of the, part of the work here to carry this on? You know, you guys are coming in here for a visit. When are you going to bring somebody down? Well, how can you answer that one? You know? Just that, just to suffice it and to cut to the chase here because my time is, is pretty well up. Um, on the second last visit down to Guasave, we actually go by four different villages in the country, and we went to one of them. And we had a meeting there with six adults. There's three more villages to contact, as well as to continue with that village that are still the people and family are still open. They have relatives in the assembly in Obregón. The other villages have relatives in the assembly in Hermosillo. So Marcus is saying that this next visit on October 10th, he just said to me, he says, you know, I think we should probably go for at least more than one day. So maybe we can stay overnight and we can visit some of these villages as well as contacts from another brother, brother back in Los Angeles in a, another village that's further south of Guasave in Guamuchil. So he says, you know, then we can try to get a little more done in, in, instead of just going there for one day because it pretty well takes up your whole day to deal with just the one family in Guasave, not to mention these other villages. Of course, the believers whose relatives are in these villages are wanting to come down on the next trip, so we'll have to just pace it all out and see how it goes. Very quickly, I just want to come in with one other thing. You remember I told you about the two women that professed to get saved in the meetings in West Phoenix in January, anxious about their father and their brother that lived in Tarandacuao, that we went and had a little uh, preliminary visit and meeting with? Well, the mom lives in Nogales. Right on the way, on the highway, on the way out of of Mexico up to Arizona. So, John Dennison and I had the privilege of going in there and having a first gospel meeting in the home of Josefina. Josefina was sitting there. She had a neighbor lady. She had her own two teenage granddaughters, another teenage daughter of the neighbor lady, and she's sitting there waiting for us. She says, I've been waiting for, for this meeting for the whole day. And I remember John Dennis and I, we put up a little mini two-roads chart on the wall. Actually, we didn't put it on the wall. We threw it on the floor because we didn't have any tape with us to put it on the wall. And they all listened very respectfully, took a sample of all the tracks afterwards. We have a talk with Josefina, and Josefina can't get it out of her head how that good works, that good works have to be a part of getting saved and getting to heaven. And she was almost kind of firm, and that's how it ended. We thought, this lady's a long way from getting saved. We're going to have to... You know, it's going to take God to convince her otherwise. So, what do you think happened? Well, the typical trend that we do is, is we give them a list of verses to read from the scriptures, as well as a bunch of gospel tracts. This woman was very sincere, and please do not misinterpret what I'm going to tell you now. But just to give you an idea of how sincere she was, even despite her confusion. I remember John looked around. We're all in one room the kitchen, the living room, and the bedroom. There's a mattress on the floor. And on the mattress is a bunch of balloons. John says, oh, somebody have a birthday here recently? No, she said a little sheepishly, no. She said, um, I just, you know, in anticipation of the visit today, she said, I was going to make a banner with some balloons on it, and I was going to say, welcome. She says, because I don't want you to misunderstand me. 
She says, but for me, she said, more than just you two men coming in to visit today, as far as I'm concerned, God has come to see me today because he's got something he wants to tell me. I talked to her on the phone. She said, three days after the meeting, she says, starting the first day, I put myself to read. And she says, I'm a little hard-headed and thick-headed, and it's hard for me to understand what I'm reading. So I read those verses that you gave me, and I reread them, and I reread them. And she says, in fact, I started to try to memorize them. And I'm working my way through memorizing them. And I came to John 19 and verse number 30, where it says, it is finished. And she says, that's where I realized that salvation is not by good works, because Christ has already done the work. She says, so brother, I'm so happy, and I'm so thankful. So we just had another meeting there on the way out of the country, and Deb and the kids were able to be along. Marcus came with us and caught a bus to go back home the same night, and uh, it was uh, a wonderful occasion. She actually tricked two of her friends to coming, ladies to come over to the meeting. She says, uh, it, it kind of set the meeting off to a bad start, because she said in front of them and to them, she says, there was no way I was going to tell you what this was about, because you wouldn't have been here. So she said, I just didn't tell you what was going on and just wanted to get you in the door so you could hear this message. So please pray for Nogales and all these other places. And even if you can't remember the names, please remember the need of the work in in Mexico. Please remember the fact that there is, you're just going to have to put up with this. At least for me, this is one of the unacceptable features of the work in Mexico. And I understand all the counter-prevailing arguments. But listen, there's 112 million of a population in Mexico. There's 20 million in the area and city of Mexico City alone. And no full-time assembly workers in that city. All the works and workers in Mexico are understaffed. As of 2011, David Alves informs me, there are 15,000 active Catholic priests, 150 seminaries, 5,000 professors of Catholic religion, 40,000 nuns, 250,000 catechists, and somewhere around 16 assembly workers. I know that that's not the only way that God measures a work. But the need is staggering and breathtaking. And if you've got any heart today, and I know God doesn't call everybody, and if he doesn't call anyone, he's completely right. He's not obligated. But if you've got any heart today, and a love for souls, and God fits you, and you have the confidence of your brethren, please pray hard. Please pray hard our countries to the south of us that for the most part is going to hell while we're all happily going to heaven. May God bless his word.